after uh, it was announced that uh, Kobe Bryant had, had passed away, I was, I thought to myself, you know, our, our culture never really wants to talk about God, death, or eternity until someone dies. And then once someone dies, we are left with how to explain what happens next. And our world just can't come up with any good answers. I've never seen secular America so spiritual this week. And um, whether you agree with how much media attention Kobe deserves or what have you, the, the truth is still that America and every sinner on earth is yearning for some kind of spiritual fulfillment. We're hungry. We're starving. We sure don't want to talk about God when we're alive, but when someone dies, we just kind of start scrapping for different kinds of pithy spiritual sayings to help us feel better. And there is no religion on earth, there is no idea that can give us the the theological, ideological hardware to come to grips with death other than the Bible. And I remember only time I ever disagreed, well, maybe not the only, only time. One of the few times I ever I disagreed with my granddad. Granddad was getting old and he goes, I ain't afraid, of, he goes, I ain't scared of dying. <laughs> I said, well, that's, that's good, granddad. He goes, I ain't scared of God. He looked at me and I'm like, like he wanted me to like disagree with him or something. And I did. And I said, granddad, you're not scared? I mean, it's good to have a fear of God, but I don't. I said, well, I think Jesus died not so that we wouldn't fear God, but so that we wouldn't fear judgment. And I think there's a difference. I still think today, and I think you should sometimes, I mean, I think everyone does, I think of my own death a lot. I mean, not in a morbid way. But it says we boldly approach the throne of grace. That word boldly just sticks out in my mind. Because I'll tell you what, if I come before God, I'm supposed to come boldly to God? I mean, that's, whoo I'm going to be on my knees. If, if I can come boldly on my knees, that's the way I'm coming. Um, boldly, throw, I'm supposed to boldly approach. You know what? That, he puts that adverb in there because Jesus' blood is the reason you can come boldly. No other reason. I used to watch storms in Kentucky with my dad, and dad would open up the, the garage. Dad, was just, dad still is kind of a nature nerd. And we'd watch the thunderstorms from our garage. Dad would open it up and it would just, just, you know, the lightning would, you know. I remember being like six years old and dad would like just, you know, look at that. You know, I'm like, I want to go inside. <laughs> dad, like, isn't this beautiful? I'm like, I guess. And every once in a while, I mean, at six years old, that lightning would go, just like, you know, I mean, it would come down and you'd go, I want to go watch Home Improvement or something. Any 90s kids in here? Okay, never mind. And um, I remember thinking, I'm afraid of 
what that is. But I, being with my dad, and I, I, had, I had more trust being with my dad in the bed of the truck than I had fear of the lightning that was outside. I will always be afraid of the lightning. I will always be afraid of God's wrath. I will always be, I have a healthy fear of God's holiness. And I shudder to think what, it would, what, it would, what, it, what would befall a sinner who is not clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But I have trust and I can come boldly to the throne of grace because I'm holding Christ's hand. Don't ever say you're not afraid of God. I would never say such a thing. And my grandfather's in eternity now. And I don't know where grandfather, where granddaddy is, but I know he has a fear of God now. Genesis, the folks in Genesis, they have to have a fear of God. Because every step, God is showing up in magnificent ways. He shows up in the garden. What is the first thing they do? They hide. Because why? They're afraid. He shows up. They're already making sacrifices by chapter 4. The flood comes in in chapter 6. I mean, we just read about Jacob's ladder. He has a dream where God, God is standing at the top of a, of a staircase and angels are coming up and down. And then Jacob wakes up and he says, God's here. God is always showing up in Genesis in the most marvelous of ways. Abraham is just has a front row seat to the majesty of God. Last week we read that God reminded Jacob once again... They keep forgetting, lest they forget, God shows up once again and says in chapter 35, verse 11, A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, Jacob, and kings shall come from your body. Time after time, God is coming in a spectacular way and making the same thing clear over and over and over. The beginning of great things to come. And we have to see gospel in, the gen- in Genesis. We have to see it. Go ahead and show that slide if you don't mind, uh, Josh. Uh, I don't know. Did I have one before that? There it is. Christ in Genesis. There's a prophecy in Genesis 3. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, he tells Satan. Blessing in, Je- in Genesis 12. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Covenant in Genesis 15. Your offspring shall be like the stars in heaven. We know that Jesus Christ is a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and it is through Jesus Christ that we receive all those blessings that God is making clear. But in Genesis 15, God says something weird, something you wouldn't expect in a covenant. And I'm going to refer to it because it helps us to understand our text today. Let's read Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. Here's what he says. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet Complete. Hello. Is that me? No. 
know if it is me or not. Okay. It's good timing. Good effect, though. That's a lot. It's kind of, kind of weird to say after a covenant. Hey, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm not backing out. You're my guy, Abraham. And by the way, your people are going to be in bondage for 400 years. That's not a typical covenant-making ceremony. You're my guy, Abraham. Look at the stars. Every one of them is going to be your, your people. Everything, every blessing, every good thing I have is for you. And by the way, uh, they're not getting out for four generations. This is a critical four verses in the entire Bible because it explains two things clearly. One, God is making it clear that Abraham's descendants, his people, will be in slavery for 400 years. God called it from the very beginning. He said it. Secondly, God tells Abraham why it's going to take 400 years. 400 years isn't an arbitrary number. Here's what he says. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's a common question posed by biblical scholars today, and it goes like this. Isn't When God calls the Israelites into Canaan, isn't God kind of sanctioning genocide? Have you ever heard people pose that question? I mean, God tells Joshua to wipe out the Canaanites. That sounds like genocide to me. A lot of, a lot of biblical scholars wrestle over that. And here you have the answer. It's not that God hates one people. It's not that God had it out for the Canaanites. It's not that we should feel bad for the Canaanites. And it's not because God is unjust. God is going to wait 400 years so that when His people do go into the promised land, the Amorites will be so evil, the Canaanites will be so vile that their destruction will be just and good. You don't hear that one preached a lot. Here's the gospel this morning. God will always remain just and good in the face of His enemies. And He saves sinners in such a way that His justice is satisfied in a crucified Jesus and His goodness is bestowed on those who are enslaved to sin. When God delivers sinners from bondage and into the promised land, His justice and His goodness are put on display. Here's the question. If the Israelites are prophesied are predicted if God's telling Abraham up front your people are going to spend 400 years in Egypt how do they get there well we have our answer here in Genesis chapter 37 if you don't mind turning to Genesis chapter 37 and when you found it if you'll stand please for the reading of God's word Daryl's already already standing up or I even said it Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, 
And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are you pasturing the flock? Where they are pasturing the flock? And the the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, where their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is, our, is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Father, what evil things your people have done. Father, let us not read this passage this morning thinking that that evil does not completely reside in us as well. 
We too, such were some of us. Father, we are of the flesh. We are, are depraved. We are blind. We are unable to come to you. We are unable to do good. But by your power, Father, by your grace, you have delivered us from slavery. By Jesus Christ, who himself was betrayed by his brothers and who himself became a slave. Father, this morning I pray that you would show us the glory of Christ Jesus. Show us how you fulfilled your promises even when your people dwelled in unbelief. And all these things we ask in your son's name. Amen. Woo! Dysfunction. Not a good family. God's people, not godly people. Here's the summary. Here's what I have to say. I think this, is, this sums it up. In their jealousy and envy for Joseph, the sons of Jacob sell their brother into slavery. As he has done throughout Genesis and as he continues to do today, God uses the evil and unbelief of his people to fulfill his promises and to ultimately deliver his people. Here's a little context. Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, as we saw. He's Rachel's son. He's not Rachel's only son. Rachel has two sons. The youngest is Benjamin, Benjamin. In verse 3, it says that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because why? He was the son of his old age. We all know what that means. I don't need to, I don't need to exegete the Hebrew to tell you what that means. What does that mean? We don't actually raise your hand if in your family, uh, mom and dad kind of coddled the youngest. Raise your hand. Go ahead. Okay. Raise your hand if you are the older child. Raise your hand. Okay. Gotcha. Raise your hand if you're the youngest. That's why nobody raised their hand. <laughs> Y'all don't know. So we kind of see this today. You understand the principle a little bit. I didn't realize how many younger kids we have in here. I was the older, by the way. Moving on. Um, Jacob probably starts this whole mess, kind of, by showing favoritism to his son. It starts to foster a little bit of sibling rivalry, and you can detect it in the passage already. Here's something to think about. Parents are allowed to have weaknesses for their children. They're not allowed to show favoritism to their children. James 2.9, If you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law. As transgressors. I'm already dealing with this in my own family. I don't have a favorite child, but boy, I'll tell you, my daughter, Sissy Boo, I've got Sissy Boo. You know, Roman's got it, you know, Roman, Bubba. But man, Sissy, she got me around her finger like that. And she'll say things sometimes, and I already sense sometimes I, I, I'm treating Roman tougher, you know, because he's a son. Sissy, I just give her whatever she wants sometimes, and I'm already catching it. The other day, you know, Sissy got new, uh, help me out, what are these things? No, headphones. No, she, she got braids, beads, braids, whatever they're called. Kelly will make me pay for that one. Um, but she goes, she goes, do you like it? And I was like, oh, Sissy, they're so beautiful. And then Roman came up to me and he goes, is my hair not beautiful? And I was like, no, 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 your hair is beautiful too. He's like, okay. I've already got to be so careful with my kids. I'm already on guard. It is no doubt like that in a family of 12 brothers. 
Jacob's favoritism probably goes a little bit deeper than haircuts, though. Verses 3 and 4, And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. That might sound tacky today. Well, that's a multicolored robe, so what? Well, back then, before the ages of inks and dyes, this is an extremely valuable article of clothing. But let's not blame everything on Jacob. Some of it's got to go to Joseph too. Joseph walks in. Hey guys, you never believe this dream I had. Hey, um, well basically we're in a field and uh, your sheaves were getting on the ground and bowing to my sheep. Isn't that cool? <laughs> About to drop kick Joseph is what they were trying to do. <laughs> it says they hated him. You're going to rule over us is what they said. Doesn't stop there. Joseph has another dream. Guys, hey, hey, the sun and the moon and the stars were bowing to me. And by the way, there were 11 stars, so I know it was all of you, y'all, y'all. Um, and they were all bowing to me. That means y'all are going to bow to me. Isn't that really cool? Joseph thinks it's dumb. This time, Dad hears it, and even Jacob's like, so we're going to bow to you. Have you ever met somebody? Have you ever met somebody who wasn't blatantly arrogant, but they just, just really into themselves? A little naive, but mm, that was probably Joseph. Now, of course, in Joseph's defense, that's what he dreamed. It wasn't his fault. He wasn't making it up. As we're going to see, it came true. But what Joseph doesn't realize is it's that not every thought in your head needs to come out of your mouth. Proverbs 18, 6-7 says, A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. That's Joseph. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. Wisdom isn't just knowing what to say. Wisdom is knowing if something should be said, and if so, when and how to say it. Now, obviously, Joseph doesn't deserve to be sold into slavery. But his foolishness invites the foolishness of others. Have you ever listened to two people arguing over who started their argument? This is how it happens right here. Somebody said something foolish and then somebody did something even stupider. I did not realize how many careless... I, I, just, I read this text so much better now as a married man. I did not realize how many careless, stupid, oblivious, naive things I said until I got married. And now we'll be out somewhere and, and I'll be in the middle of a conversation kind of like... Mm. But I was like, no, we don't, we don't say that. There are so many things to bring into consideration when we're talking to other sinners. Sometimes we don't think before we open our mouth. Joseph obviously didn't think before he opened his. Of course, he's younger. Reuben is the only one who's like, what are we doing? We live in a world... Actually, you know what? I think, just to be, just to be clear, actually put up the one about Joseph. 
Here's what I think. Here's what I, th- I think we should think about Joseph. Joseph announcing his dreams to his family was not in itself a sin. He's just telling them about his dream. But his naivety and his lack of sensitivity to the feelings of his family were indeed rooted in sin, I believe. We live in a world today that is so sensitive to everything that we're afraid to say anything. And a lot of us get so frustrated in our culture that we just decide to say anything. And we live in a world today that we're either so sensitive we say nothing or we just say everything. And God's people are called to be wise with our words and to consider the needs of others before speaking. Now, what his brothers do, just downright evil, you can see the sarcasm already building in verse 19. Here comes this dreamer. So they said. They hate Joseph so much that they actually consider killing him and the only reason they don't kill him is what? To make money off of him. Can't make any money if he's dead. How ironic, guess who comes up with selling him into slavery? Judah! Line of Judah! How ironic is it that Judah, the brother through whom Jesus Christ will be descended, is the one who comes up with the fantastic idea to sell his other brother into slavery? That's a great family legacy, right there. But we shouldn't completely be shocked because Jesus Christ was very clear that once you hate someone, you are capable of almost anything. Here's what he says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Once Joseph's brothers fall into jealousy, they fall into hatred. Once they fall into hatred, they're lying to their father and contemplating killing their brother. My dad used to have a saying. It was actually one of his favorite sayings. Son, don't lie to me. You lie, you steal, you steal, you kill. Did anybody else's dad say that? You ever heard about that? Okay, which it was really powerful to a nine-year-old kid because it was the equivalent of being called a murderer. But anytime I'd ever kind of bend the truth, I'd be like, you lie, you steal, and you steal, you kill. There was some truth to that, though. I think we can all testify to the fact that once you write someone off in your mind, Once you envy someone so much that you despise them, you have unconsciously decided not to pray for them. And there is no uglier form of hatred than refusing to pray for someone. Because at the point where you refuse to pray for someone, what you're saying now is, I have no regard for your well-being, your soul, or your standing before the Almighty God. Envy and jealousy eliminate, they erode our love for others and our prayers on their behalf. But it didn't start all at once though, did it? This hatred, hatred and envy and jealousy, it doesn't just, it doesn't just sometimes come all in one wave. It happens over time, doesn't it? It was years of Jacob showing preferential treatment to Joseph. It was that darn coat. It's the coat's fault. It was all the comments about the dreams. He just wouldn't stop talking. 
Their hatred turned into attempted murder. Their attempted murder turned into slavery. Their slavery turns into lying. Here's something complex to think about this morning. People are the product of layers and layers and years and years of experience. So much so that we could never hope to heal all of someone's wounds with one conversation or a flippant comment. Sins build over time. Wounds deepen over time. Words stay in our minds. And that's why we need the gospel. And that's why people need the church. Everyone in here has a wound. And I couldn't, and if I know, even if I knew what they were, as I do, as many of us do, one another, it takes time for us to understand the years and years and years and years that go behind those wounds. Can you imagine if Jacob's family went to counseling? Can you imagine? I mean, it would be awful. There's so much pain and resentment in that family. It goes way before. I'm sure. I'm sure Joseph thinks the it goes back to the to the coat. And I, I imagine Judah stands up and is like, no, 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 it goes way back for the coat. And they're like, well, what, what do you mean? Hold on. And Jacob's like, I've always been a good father. And all the sons are like, well, I gave you everything you want. Oh, Dad, you know, just it's always about Joseph. And you dig and you dig and you dig and finally you, you understand that families are complex and there's no hope for this family or any family without returning to God's promises. Their faith in Yahweh is the only thing that will overcome their problems and their iniquities. Little do they know though that Joseph, their brother, is perhaps the biggest Christ figure in the entire book of Genesis some people say that Joseph's life mirrors Jesus' life more than any Old Testament figure. In chapter 37, we see two things that parallel between Joseph and Jesus. Both Joseph and Jesus were betrayed, and both Joseph and Jesus became slaves. God is already promising and preparing a Savior for every messed up family. Now, I don't know many families where the brother sold the other brother into slavery. But I know plenty of families with resentment, bitterness, jealousy, envy, and hatred. And the hatred that resides in our families can only be overcome, not by looking to ourselves or one another, but with Christ. Here's a fantastic quote by D.A. Carson. You can trust a God who is not only sovereign, but bleeds for you. Like Joseph, Jesus was betrayed. Like Joseph, Jesus became a slave. But unlike Joseph, Jesus was free of sin. He had no wrongdoing. He had no guilt. Every one of us in here, if we're honest about our sin and about our wrongdoing, every one of us in here deserves to be sold into slavery. Every one of us in here deserves to be put into chains for eternity for the things we've done to the Lord. And yet Jesus took our chains, tasted death, and endured the cross so that we could have a family. This morning it's important to remember that our sins put Jesus on the cross. 
Our sins nailed Jesus there. Jesus came and died for our sins. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was crowned with thorns. He was hung on a cross. He was publicly shamed. Jesus became a slave so that we could be his brothers and sisters. Now, today, I'll be honest, I was reading this. For those of you who know the story of Joseph, I was going through this text, and I was going, well, how do I preach chapter 37 without going all the way to chapter 50? But one thing we have to remember is that God is already fulfilling his promises in chapter 37 so that he can fulfill his oath or his covenant with Abraham in chapter 15. There are many times... I don't think that I lived in a house where there was favoritism. I don't think Dad ever showed favoritism to one of us. I had Dad's name. I was older. Grant was smarter. Grant was probably more successful. I was probably more well-behaved. We were always even. But there were times where I thought my dad showed favoritism to my brother. I remember one time he walked home. I won't say what it was about, but I thought mom and dad just made a whole lot more of Grant's accomplishments than mine. And I remember telling Grant one time, I was like, you remember that time you came back from Yale? And they, all, they, all they did was talk about their Ivy League son. Didn't talk about University of Kentucky, son. Didn't talk about Mr. SEC, did they? And my dad was like, it's probably because you had a 2.3. Um... <laughs> And I told my brother that, and my brother was like, Abby, I was always in your shadow. Mr. Spiritual, Mr. Preacher, I can't ever do anything right because it's always you. Abby did this, Abby did that. Me and my brother found out one day that I always thought I was in his shadow, and he always thought I was in mine. And I think what we agreed on was that our dad made a lot of mistakes. But the one thing we had in common was our love for our father. And I'm so glad that Grant and I finally had that conversation at the end of our time in youth. Because by that time, we both knew that whatever resentment and envy and jealousy we had, we were able to take it and put it on the cross wherein our third brother died for all of the crap that we put him through. I shouldn't say crap. My point this morning is that um, families are messed up. And we put so much hurt and wounds on one another and hurt people hurt people and, and families end up just like Joseph's. But can we take hope in the fact that even in Genesis chapter 37 that God is preparing a Savior and a Redeemer for every messed up family. There's not one perfect family in this room. And everyone has access to the grace of God and to Jesus Christ just by simply believing in the gospel. And that is what unites us together. And that is why I can call everyone in here a brother and sister as close as they were my own blood brother. That's the gospel. And I invite you to believe it this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our brother, Jesus Christ. 
took our sins and He wiped them clean. Gave us a spotless record. Not because of anything we've done, Father. It is Jesus who lived a sinless life. It is Jesus who has perfect righteousness. And we, just like Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery, we had nothing but lies and deceit. Father, none of us have anything but dirty rags to bring before you. But Father, Joseph, our Jesus, our Joseph, the one who did nothing wrong, the one who, who, who lived a sinless life and had nothing but righteousness and glory, he has now clothed us with royal robes so that we can come to you, our Father, and we can cry, Abba. Father, we don't read this text today thinking that we have more in common with Joseph than we do with Judah. We have all been Judas. We have all betrayed. We have all mocked. We have all deceived. We've all schemed. But Father, in Jesus, we have new life and new hope. And all these things we ask in your precious Son's name. Amen. Amen.